begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. So, Tommy, uh, tax-free weekend. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, we, you know, we just talked to Lindsey Burke. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to that interview later in the show. But one of the things that came up is it's back to school time. And in Virginia, we've got tax-free weekend. Uh, but, it, you know, that super strong, nostalgic feeling that we all have for back to school time. You're, it's school supplies. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's football games around the corner. Fall is around the corner. Um it's just a special time of year, and I think we all remember exactly what it felt like to be a school kid going back to school. You're going to see your friends again. It, it may, maybe it's just me, but it, it's one of those times that I have the, the strongest, and it was the same feeling every year. So it's it's really nostalgic for me. And so that Lindsey Burke interview where we talked about back to school um, – Really got me feeling nostalgic for that yeah, time. Yeah, made me want to go buy school supplies, and I'm not in school, so. Yeah, um, and they would be tax free nowadays. That's true. You know, so that's tax free week is a good thing. Waste of money. Um, well, Congress is in recess. Yeah, that's while everyone awesome. else is getting ready to go back to school. Uh, <laughs> did they get anything done before they left? Well, here's what happened. We expected the Senate to be in session this week, um, but uh, on Thursday, um, the Senate confirmed in one foul swoop in one minute. Uh, on block, by unanimous consent, 65 of President Trump's nominees. Uh, Now, they weren't the most controversial nominees, but still 65 is um, more than they had done the rest of the year put together. Um, So in the blink of an eye, they more than doubled the number of nominees that they were able to confirm. Now, that, that is a significant shift. For the minority, for the Democrats um, to allow that, they had said all along that um, the blockade, so to speak, on president – it wasn't a blockade, right? It was just they were uh, they were running time um, – would stop when Republicans um, stopped repealing Obamacare. Um, and so uh, maybe uh, th- that failure uh, two weeks ago has something to do with this, although over the weekend Mitch McConnell said there's still a chance they could go back to it. Uh, and and we're hopeful, obviously, that they do. And I know one of the other topics on the note of Obamacare is removing the exemption for members of Congress for Obamacare. I seems like that's getting some steam. Do you well? So are you optimistic that that might happen? Yeah, definitely. So uh, President Trump breathed new life into it. Yeah. What it is, uh, they're actually on Obamacare, but the government's paying for it. Right. Uh, and so they're not having to deal with the price in- increases and, and those types of things like the rest of us are. But it's a mess. They're they're on Obamacare in the sense that somebody at OPM uh, or uh, and somebody at Congress um, swore to the fact that they were a small business. So they're on the small business exchange. I, I can't think of anything yeah. less like a small business than the United States Congress. Having worked there, that's not how the administration of the place works at all. Um, and so, and they're receiving a big subsidy. We're paying for it. So it, it's a little bit different spending somebody else's money on health care than your own. The idea is that they would um, – if they had to live under it like the rest of us do, uh, there would be more momentum to repealing it. But – you would not believe the pushback inside the halls of Congress on this idea. They are going nuts thinking that they might have to live like the rest of us do. Amazing. Well, Heritage's Bob Moffat has written a lot on this. I would definitely recommend our listeners to check that out on The Daily Signal. A few other things going on. Um, two big announcements on immigration last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first was on illegal immigration. 
Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, one of our favorites here at the Heritage Foundation, um, uh, said that uh, rolled out a major initiative to remove certain funding from uh, sanctuary jurisdictions, sanctuary cities. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, untold millions of dollars will stop flowing uh, to those cities that refuse to uphold our laws um, and help the federal government keep us safe. Uh, this is a this is a major announcement. I'm not sure it's getting a lot of coverage in the news. Um, there are, uh, you know, some some jurisdictions out there that just want to be thorns in the in the president's side. But uh, this is a, this is a major announcement. And then the other ones on the other side, illegal immigration. President Trump um, rolled out uh, the Raise Act, a mm-hmm. a legal immigration green card policy reform that would move us from the system we have now to a, a pure merit based system for letting uh, for 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 giving out uh, permanent resident status. Uh, you may have seen um, Stephen Miller's uh, uh, pretty great, I think, press conference rolling this out. So if you haven't seen that, uh, I, I, I watched the whole thing. It's about 30 minutes. It's worth your time. Uh, go check that out. Yeah, the White House press briefing is usually must-see TV around here. So, <laughs> Well, here we go with that interview we promised at the top of the show uh, with Lindsey Burke. Uh, this was a really cool interview. I, I'm really excited about Education Choice. Um, and she's great in this interview. So let's go ahead and roll that. Well, we are very privileged to have with us Lindsay Burke, the director of the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. She's also the Will Skillman Fellow, and she's a fellow at Ed Choice, Milton Freeman's organization. Um, she's been a leading light on education policy, especially uh, school choice, uh, for, for all of 10 years. Uh, she's recognized in numerous ways, but we're really fortunate to have her here at the Heritage Foundation. She's one of those that is having enormous impact on the debate, um, and we're really glad to have you here. Welcome back to Mass Ave, Lindsay. Thank you. Uh, I know last time you spoke with us about expanding school choice for military families, and we wanted to bring you back in because it's back-to-school season. Seems like a good time to be talking about school choice. It was tax-free weekend. It was also tax-free weekend. In Virginia. That was very exciting for us Virginians. Yeah, get school supplies. Um, (laughs) So we wanted to bring you back and kind of touch base on, you know, what's going on in the education world. Probably one of the first things I want to hear. Besides tax-free weekend. Right. Besides tax-free weekend, (laughs) which is what Tommy is thinking about. Um, so what I really wanted to talk about was, um, you know, there have been a lot of proposals for federal tax credits, you know, to apply to school vouchers. I know that that's been one of those, um, things that you have actually spoken out against. Can you tell me a little bit of what the proposal is and why it's not a great idea? Well, a couple of things. I mean, let me just start by saying, of course, we think school choice is phenomenal policy, right? I mean, this is something that should to me seem so obvious, right, that we would fund kids instead of funding institutions, physical school buildings, and actually empower families to direct where their dollars go and to choose what learning options work well for their children. Um, this is great policy at the state level. It's great policy at the local level. And in some very specific instances, you mentioned military school choice. It's mm-hmm. appropriate through federal policy. But creating a brand new out of whole cloth federal tax credit scholarship which is the idea that seems to be floating around out there, creates a lot of problems, not the least of which is that we end up making local private schools increasingly dependent on federal programs, and that really moves us in the wrong direction. We want to be getting the federal government out of K-12 education policy as much as possible, and I really think that this would run the risk of, in the long run, 
regulating private schools, and really in a way that could be to the detriment of the broader school choice movement. So caveat emptor on the federal tax credit scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, but there are ways, as you mentioned, military school choice that, that are appropriate through federal policy. So what is, I, I totally follow you, right? We want to we uh, empower students rather than schools and focus the dollars uh, there on the individuals. Right. What is then the conservative alternative to, because, uh, th- th- you know, this is probably better than the status quo, but of course there's probably a better idea. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, well, first of all, at the state level, right, talk to your state folks, make the case for school choice options. I mean, that's number one. Education, we should remember, right, K-12 education is a quintessentially state and local issue. Ninety percent of everything that we spend on K-12 education is state and local taxpayer dollars. So the federal government is a mere 10 percent stakeholder in all education financing. So that should dictate in a large way how we think about what we can do through federal policy to advance school choice. But the alternatives, there are a few. There are really strong alternatives and could really advance the ball on creating more school choice options for kids across the country. Number one, as Emily said, choice for military families. National defense is an enumerated power of the federal government. Uh, it actually is a uh, education program that has a constitutional warrant. Warrant. This is known as the Impact Aid Program. It's about $1.3 billion. We think that that program should be modernized, just as we have modernized almost every other aspect of military life, and really direct those dollars in the form of education savings accounts for eligible kids. So what that would look like, military families could get their share of impact aid dollars in an education savings account. So that money would go directly into an account that parents could control. They could then pay for private school tuition, online learning, hire private tutors if they wanted. If their child needed special education services and therapies, they could do that. So it's really flexible. So choice for military families. But also, another thing to think about is the District of Columbia. The kids here in Washington, D.C., live in an area that is home to some of the worst performing public schools in the country. And D.C. is under the jurisdiction of Congress, so it's totally appropriate to think about transitioning the money that we spend in D.C. into a system of choice. And there's the D.C. voucher program currently in D.C. Let's think about taking that program, expanding it to all kids in the district, and basically transitioning D.C. into an all-choice district. So those are two really good options right off the bat. And then hopefully we'd have a 50-state network of of school choice options to go along with the two things that the federal government can give us, military school choice and and D.C. And and we're already seeing it, right? So allow states to continue to lead. Every year we see state after state adopt new school choice options, primarily education savings accounts, but also tax credit scholarships and vouchers. So let them keep doing what they're doing really well. I I worry about the federal government having too much of a heavy hand in this and the unintended consequences that could come down the road. So um, I, I want to be wary here of, of just talking about school choice in the abstract. Um, yeah. And I really I've heard you uh, give this spiel I'm about to ask you for uh, in the past. And I, I found it fascinating. What is it like for a family in one of these states that has uh, school choice or education savings accounts 
Uh, what is their education experience like? Because it's radically different than, yeah. than what most of us have. Yeah, right. I mean, we expect this in every other aspect of our lives, right? When we go to look for a restaurant, we expect to go on Yelp. When we want to get somewhere, we expect to be able to call up Uber, right? I mean, we expect customization in every aspect of our lives, except our kids' education and maybe the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? So, <laughs> I mean, we don't want to keep education lumped into that, that category. And so if you look at states that have robust choice options, Arizona is a really good example. Arizona was first out of the gate on education savings accounts. One family who I think is a really good example of this, the Ashtons in Arizona, their son, Max, he was one of the first to enter the ESA option. Max is legally blind. He's been blind since birth. So they opted into the program. They took their 90% of what the state of Arizona would have spent on Max in the public school. That went directly into his parents' education savings account. They then paid private school tuition. He bought all of his Braille textbooks, all of his assistive technology, talking computer, everything that he needed to be successful as a blind student. They then, after all of that, right, after paying private school tuition at one of the nicest schools in Arizona and buying all of the additional stuff that he needed, they still had thousands of dollars left over at the end of every year. Max now pays his college tuition at Loyola Marymount University with his leftover state K-12 ESA dollars. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to me to think about how much better parents can do than some faceless bureaucrat who's never met a kid who's trying to allocate taxpayer resources on his behalf. And I know one of the other areas that you've talked about um, that have very limited choice options are the Native American reservations. Kind of looking at the model of education that they have, do you see any of your suggested models here as something that would be able to translate over to them? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's an option that I forgot to mention at the federal (laughs) level, which is a really good and important one. And that is uh, kids, Native American kids who live on tribal lands, they attend Bureau of Indian Affairs schools. And they are actually the worst performing schools in the country. Um, We were looking at one school district where their reading proficiency rate is 1%. 1% if kids can read proficiently. So it's really just a tragic situation there. And that is something where you're exactly right. There's this unique uh, contractual obligation between the federal government and these Native American communities. And thinking about taking the $860 million we spend every year, transitioning that into a system of education savings accounts that those families could use would be really, really smart policy. So by focusing on the states... And uh, and and what Congress can do in the zones that they can do uh, the education savings account and the school choice movement um, they've had some success. Yeah, uh, th- there are a number of states that are doing this and, and and more considering it. What give us the scoreboard? Yeah, so the scoreboard is pretty good right now considering ESAs were only introduced as a concept, uh, a functioning concept in law in 2011. We now have six states that have ESAs in place. Uh, North Carolina just became the sixth to do it. It was about three weeks ago. So really strong momentum. I would say most, if not all, of the states now that are thinking about doing some sort of school choice program, right? And we we hesitate to even call it school choice anymore. It's education choice because you can do so many things with your ESA. Most states are thinking about ESAs at this point. So track record's looking really good. On the overall school choice uh, scoreboard, we have, last I look, I think it was 26 states that had either ESAs, tax credits, or voucher options in place. Is it a, um, a parent-led movement? You know, that, that's, that's one of the, uh, the great things about education is it's so close to home. Um, and, you know, school, local school boards, parents getting involved, 
talk to us a little yeah. bit about the movement. You're involved with Ed Choice. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So Ed Choice, which is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Milton Friedman's namesake organization, has really been just uh, on the, the front lines of advancing education choice throughout the country. And I think really taking what was an academic idea when Milton Friedman first put it forward in 1955 to something that's functioning in policy and working really well for families. Um, on the sort of parent side of it, Parents are absolutely the ones who are leading it the most vocally. And I think that's a function of the fact that for most families in most states, if your state doesn't have school choice, you can look around to your neighboring state and in all likelihood they do. And so I think we're almost at a tipping point now where parents are saying, you know, what the heck? Why don't I have choice? You know, if I'm living in Texas, I'm the only state in the South now without a school choice program in place. Mm -hmm. So we're getting to the point where I think there is a a significant wave of choice that's really going to push some of the other states that haven't gotten on board quite as quickly as they should have in the right direction. It always surprises me that there actually are people who say that school choice is a bad thing. Right. Um, and, right. You know, the main argument that I've heard on that is that, you know, it takes money away from public schools, harms public schools. How would you kind of respond to that kind of a criticism? Yeah. So the only way that a public school loses money under a school choice or in a school choice environment is if a family chooses to leave that school. And families should have the option, right? right. If a school's not meeting their needs, we should not trap them. That district school should not be in entitled to their dollars. So if district schools are meeting the needs of families, they have nothing to fear under a school choice option. If they're not, we should not consign these kids to schools that don't meet their unique needs. And that goes for schools that are low and high performing. Even in a high performing school, that school might not be right for every single kid who happens to live in that neighborhood nearby. So, you know, if you have universal choice, it is all about just funding the kid instead of the physical school building allow those dollars to follow them to whatever works. Uh, well, that, this is really exciting. Um, ESA's school choice, ed- education choice, I'll get that right because that's important. <laughs> and, and, and I'm glad you pointed out because that's that's imp- uh, an important part of this. Um, this, is, uh, this is very exciting stuff. Uh, but we're steps from Capitol Hill. We are <laughs> Mass Ave. Uh, we talked a little bit about it as it relates to school you know, education choice, what the federal government can do. But walk us through, okay, we've got now, this is a bright spot for conservatives. We've got President Trump in office and a majority in the House and Senate. What's going to happen over the next few years on education policy on the federal level? Well, one, I think we will uh, be watching what happens on the choice front, I think, for both good and uh, maybe some concerning policy, right? On the concerning policy, we already covered a potential federal tax credit scholarship. You know, that has implications beyond just ed policy, right? There are tax policy implications, lots of implications there. So we'll be watching that, but also watching for missed opportunities, right? We have a great opportunity right now to actually advance the ball forward on school choice policy that's appropriate for military families, for Native American kids, for poor children living in the nation's capital. And I hope we don't miss that opportunity over the next few years. But also, too, just beyond education choice, we have a major opportunity to actually reduce federal intervention in education. We have seen 50 years of growing federal intervention of more programs and more spending and absolutely nothing to show for it other than a bloated K-12 education bureaucracy that really, I think, distracts school leaders and state leaders from their day-to-day job and what they should be doing, and instead makes them compliance mechanisms to Washington. 
So not only should we take the chance to advance choice, but we have to start cutting programs and spending in order to actually restore state and local control of education. So I guess the final question, back on the note of back to school, as parents prepared to send their kids back to school, should we feel optimistic about the future of school choice? (laughs) Yeah, for the most part, right? I mean, look, it's not all bright and rosy, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have, there are lawsuits that are out there. There are entrenched special interest groups. There are teachers unions that have uh, so much money that it has made it really difficult in some states to actually advance choice because these special interest groups just put up blockers to it. So it's not all, you know, uh, uh, perfect moving forward. But I always think if I'm in the position of the people who have been opposing education choice, then I'm feeling pretty, pretty worried at this point. I think that you know, the folks who are working to advance student-centered policies, who are working to make sure every single child has educational opportunity, are certainly on the right side of that debate. And for that, I'm very optimistic. So like I said earlier, we're seeing state after state adopt education choice options. We've got about half a million kids now in private school choice uh, programs across the country. So on balance, yes, I think we should be quite optimistic. Well, education is the future. It's our children. It's our it's, it's our priority and our resources. We prioritized it here at the Heritage Foundation, standing up the Center for Education Policy and, and putting one of our brightest talents in charge of that center. She's Lindsay Burke. She's the uh, Will Skillman Fellow. We're really glad you could join us. Any final thoughts? No, just excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for shining a spotlight on Education Choice. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Thanks. And if you are looking for conservative policy solutions to current issues, sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Every Tuesday, The Agenda will catch you up on the issues Heritage scholars are working on, explain conservative positions, and link you to our in-depth research and media interviews. The Agenda also provides information on how to watch important events happening here at Heritage and online. Don't miss out. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. I really encourage you to sign up for this. This is one of those things you're going to thank yourself for later, a week or two down the road. This email is going to catch your eye. You're going to take a look at it. You're going to see how informative it is. Uh, You're going to be either encouraged or discouraged about something that's happening in Washington, but you're going to be well-informed and you're going to thank yourself for signing up for this issue next Tuesday or, or the Tuesday after that when it hits your inbox. So I definitely encourage you to do that. And that wraps it up for our show today. Thanks for listening in. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes so you never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcasts, and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. That's a wrap. Thanks. 